Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to turn your copies of the scripture with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse Children can be dismissed for children's church at this time. I'm sorry. Thank you, Mary. Children's can, children can make their own exodus. <laughs> Much more orderly than the Israelites. <clears throat> Good. What do you have in this life? You're able to sing those words this morning, all I have is Christ. That you would be able to say that because Christ is your life. What does Paul say? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. How is it that people can say such a thing, (laughs) that death is gain? We can say that because Christ is our life forever, now and on into eternity. Because if we have Christ, we have everything. So we come to listen to the word of Christ this morning, to put ourselves under the word of Christ, to hear it, to submit to it, to receive it, to be blessed by it, to be challenged by it, and maybe even to be cut by it. Yet it always does its perfect work in us. And so for that we are thankful. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? I'm going to begin in Exodus 8.20. I will finish in 9.12. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies. 
and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house, into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. And so Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with, with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Most merciful Father, since it has pleased you to reveal the mysteries of your will, only to the little ones. And since you look on him alone who is of humble and contrite spirit, who has reverence for your word, 
grant us a humble spirit and keep us from all fleshly wisdom, which is at enmity with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Lord has designed certain creatures of the animal kingdom to be camouflaged. Their markings and colors are such that they are created to blend in with their natural surroundings. Most often it is meant to protect them from predators. For others it may be to conceal them from the prey that they are hunting. Perhaps one animal or reptile that comes easily to mind is the chameleon. Here is a critter that God has given the ability to change colors with its surroundings. They have been made to blend in. I wonder if we as Christians ever come under the wrong assumption that this is to be our lives in this world as well. That we are made to blend in. To blend into the world around us. We are afraid of looking different. We don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. We don't often want to be noticed. We'd rather fly under the radar as Christians in this world without detection. And there are those who would want to be chameleon Christians. Maybe they're here at church on Sunday morning, but then they go out in the world and they just want to blend in with the world. They don't want to be seen as Christians. They don't want anyone to know that they are Christians. They want to look just like everybody else, do what everyone else is doing, make the same decisions that everyone else is making. Don't want to be noticed. The world could be the color that they're trying to blend in with. Could it be also, though, that there are chameleon Christians that do the reverse, that, that they would come into the church on Sunday and they would want to blend in and, and be with us, be here, and try to blend in with the Christian community, with the Christian culture? What's the difference? What's the difference of those who would go out into this world and want to blend in with the world and those who would want to come in here to the church and try to blend in with the church. Perhaps there is not much of a difference. People who want to go out into the world and blend in with the world have a problem. God has not designed Christians to blend in with the world. He has not made us that way. And those who want to come into the church and blend in with the church, all the while knowing that's not who they really are. They don't know Christ. And part of the problem, I think, is that we are not trying to create a Christian culture here. We're not trying to win people to a Christian culture or a Christian atmosphere. We are trying to win people to Christ. And so often people might like the warm fuzzies that they feel coming here. 
or the music or whatever it might be. Smiling face, the warm greeting. We're here because of our allegiance to Jesus Christ and to Him alone. Christ has made us to be distinct in this world. We are to be set apart from the world that is around us. And that is not a bad position. That is a good position. That is a joyous position. That is a gracious position that has been given to us by God. Not to blend into the world, but to be different from the world. It's here where God has ordained us to be. And so I ask you this morning, are you distinct from the world? Do you look different? Or are you spending energy and effort to try to look like the rest of the world? If it's the Lord who has made you to be distinct, why would you go against the will of the Lord? These next three plagues in Exodus highlight explicitly the the distinction the Lord makes between His people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians. Why would we care about such a distinction? What difference does it make to our lives if the Lord makes this distinction? It makes a difference because this distinction means there are some who will face judgment and there will be some who escape judgment. There will be those who have the wrath of God poured out upon them and there will be those who will not know God's wrath. There will be those who are rightly and justly condemned because of their sin and others who are saved by the merciful and gracious Lord. There will be those who worship God and there will be those who refuse to worship God. And so there is a distinction that is made and a distinction that's no different than the distinction that's made today. What do these plagues teach us when the Lord makes a distinction between those who are His people and those who are not His people? Well, it teaches us three things we need to learn about this distinction. So you have to fill in all the blanks this morning. I know you can do that, though. Fill in all of the blanks. But number one, when the Lord makes a distinction, He redeems His people by His presence. When the Lord makes a distinction, He redeems His people by His presence. Say it one more time. When the Lord makes a distinction, He redeems His people by His presence. This fourth plague begins the second cycle of plagues. We can see this when we compare Exodus 8.20 to Exodus 7.15. So Exodus 7.15, Moses is to go to Pharaoh when? In the morning. What's going on? As Pharaoh is going out into the water, what happens here in Exodus 20? Rise up when? Early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. What is Pharaoh doing? As he goes out into the water. So here again is Moses, going back to Pharaoh early in the morning, 
as Pharaoh is going out into the water. This could be to be taking a bath. Some believe, though, that it could be a uh, religious or political significance that Pharaoh is going out to the Nile. And that he's saying something like this, I'm going out into the Nile to bask in all of my glory. Look at how great I am. Look at how awesome I am. Look at how powerful I am. Look at how sovereign I am. I am the Lord of the Nile. He is saying that he rules over all the Nile, and just as the Nile is great, so Pharaoh is proclaiming his greatness. But such a direction given by God to Moses is one indication that there is going to be a direct confrontation upon Pharaoh's power, upon his authority, and it is going to challenge his sovereignty. With the confrontation comes a warning. It starts with the common refrain that we know from the book of Exodus, let my people go that they may serve me. The Lord is commanding Pharaoh to specifically send out the Israelites, God's people, for the purpose of worship. Send them out, Pharaoh, that they may worship me and worship me alone. And there's a little play on words here because that's what the Lord is saying. He's saying, send my people out. When he says, let them go, it's actually this word, send. Send them out. But if you do not send them out, behold, I'm going to send something upon you. What is the Lord going to send? He is going to send a swarm of flies. And notice the pronouns here in verse 21 of chapter 8. I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. The Lord is getting us ready for this distinction that's about to be made. He's saying on you on your servants, on your people, and into all of your houses. What are we to make of these swarms of flies? What kind of flies are we talking about? Most likely, when we think about a fly, we think about a house fly or a dog fly. And these flies could very well have been like that. But I do not believe we understand these flies if we merely see them as a nuisance. Isn't that how you know flies in your life? They're just kind of a nuisance, all right? They get in your house, they buzz around your head, they're just annoying. And sometimes they're very difficult to get rid of, aren't they? We go on hunts at our house for flies. We have a fly swatter, right? Going for hunt, hunt for the flies that make their way into our house, because a child has left the door open. I don't believe that these flies were merely a bother or a nuisance or merely something to be tolerated. And I don't believe this because of what it says in Psalm 78. So Psalm 78, verse 45. If you want to look at this, uh, you can. Psalm 78, 45, refers to the plagues of the Exodus and it provides information that is helpful in our understanding. So here's what it says in Psalm 78:45. It says this about God. He sent, there's that same idea, the Lord sending this plague. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. 
So these swarms of flies, the psalmist says, these swarms of flies were actually devouring the people. They were eating the people. They were, the word here with, is devour is they were feeding upon the people. So these flies aren't a mere nuisance. It's like they are feeding upon the people. Some people even think this could have been mosquitoes that they were experiencing. I mean, do you ever say that about mosquitoes? I'm being eaten alive? And so this plague, these flies were devouring, feeding upon the people, biting the people. The plague of the flies is so catastrophic and disastrous that it's happening throughout the whole land of Egypt. And it describes the whole land as being ruined because of this plague. The idea here that this is, is, is ruination that's happening upon the land, it's, it, it's this process. The land is in this process of being ruined. The land is in the process of being destroyed. As these flies come and swarm upon the land, the land is in this process of being completely and utterly laid waste. In fact, the idea here of being ruined is the same idea that the, that the Bible uses in Genesis 13.10 when it says this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah? When the Lord rained down fire from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah and so destroyed it, the same idea here. This plague is bringing destruction upon the land. It's being destroyed, ruined, because Pharaoh refused to let the people go. And it points to this future ruin that would continue to happen because Egypt would continue to refuse to release the Israelites. But what happens with this plague? The Lord makes a distinction. When he sends the swarms of flies, he will set apart the land of Goshen. This is the land where the Israelites dwelt. It was the land that was settled by Jacob's son at the end of the book of Exodus. We've been hearing a lot in these plagues about the land of the Egyptians, the land of Egypt, where these plagues have been taking place. We haven't heard about the land of Goshen, though. And now we hear about this land of Goshen. There's this distinction. The land of Goshen, where God's people are dwelling, they will be free from the flies. They would not be ruined. They would be spared. They would not be fed upon. In fact, no flies would be there among them. What does God say? I will put a division between my people and your people. There are two types of people. There are God's people and those who are not God's people. There are those who follow the Lord and those who follow the prince of the power of the air Satan himself. There is a line, a division, something that separates. And what separates God's people from those who are not God's people? It's redemption. That's what verse 23 says there. Thus I will put a division. That word division could also be translated, I will put Redemption between them. You will know the difference between my people and your people because my people will be redeemed. I will take care of them. I will purchase them. 
God gives redemption to the Israelites. God gives redemption to his people. And this is what draws the line. Have you been redeemed by the Lord? Do you know his redemption? How do you know if you know his redemption? Ephesians 1, verse 7. In Him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Or Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Or the book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What's the result of this redemption that we have in Jesus Christ? And that's what... What makes us saved is that we have been redeemed by the Lord. He has saved us and now has made us distinct from the world. And this distinction, this redemption, is brought about by the Lord's presence. If you go back to Exodus... Chapter 8, verse 22... Why is God going to make this distinction? Why is God going to bring about this redemption? That you may know that I am the Lord. We've heard that before, haven't we? We've heard heard God say that. I want you to know that I am the Lord. There is no one like me. I'm going to reveal myself through this so that you know that I am the Lord. But now there is a difference. There's something that's added here that we haven't heard before. In the midst of the earth. I want you to know that I am the Lord and that it is me who is in the midst of the earth. Pharaoh, you think that you are great. You think that you are sovereign. But I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. You might think that you are sovereign over the Nile. You might think that you're sovereign over Egypt, Pharaoh. But I am sovereign over the whole entire earth. And my presence is there. That is where I am and am known. His presence is over the land of Goshen. His presence is over the land of Egypt. He is in the Lord who is in the midst of the whole earth. Last week we said that God is omnipotent. That is, He is all-powerful. Well, here He says He is also omnipresent. He is everywhere. I am in the midst of the earth. And we read this in Psalm 139, verses 7-9. through 9. Where shall I go from your spirit Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall uphold me. The presence of the Lord is a very comforting thought to his people but it can be a very terrifying thought to those who do not know the Lord. God redeems His people by His presence 
and it's all for his glory. I'm making this distinction. I'm redeeming my people so that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And it's the Lord who is here making himself known and who is among them that is causing it all to happen. With this destructive plague, Pharaoh appears to cave into the request, doesn't he? But he is cunning and crafty and deceitful. Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and says, fine, fine, fine. You can go and sacrifice to the God within the land. Has Pharaoh had a change of heart? Don't bet on it. Read the fine print. What's the fine print in this sentence? The fine print is in the land. Pharaoh was not letting them leave the land of Egypt. He wanted to keep them underneath his control, under his power, under his rule, and under his reign. And oh, dear Christian, let us take heed at this point. How many might want to say, ah, we've reached the compromise. Let us agree to this compromise with Pharaoh. And how easy it would be to compromise. And how I fear too many Christians would fall for the compromise. What's the compromise? Listen to how Jesus puts it in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. A heart divided against itself will not stand. You cannot serve two masters. And that's what Pharaoh's holding out. Sure, you can sacrifice to your God, but you're still going to serve me in my land. What would the Lord Jesus Christ say to the Israelites? He would say, You cannot serve God and mummy. It's no different for us today. Christians, you have one master, one whom you serve. But there is another who is trying to pry its way into your heart, another master who wants control of you, who wants to be Lord over you. And so we have to root those things out. We have to put them to death, those desires that would want to rule over us and be master over us. Moses realizes that this will not work. The sacrifices of the Israelites were an abomination to the Egyptians. They were viewed as detestable. And Moses knew the Egyptians would stone them for such actions. But I don't think that when Moses said, will they not stone us? I don't think that Moses is telling Pharaoh something that he didn't already know. (laughs) Pharaoh knew that they would stone them. Pharaoh knew it was an abomination. And so what is it that's underlying this crafty and deceitful and cunning compromise? Israelites, you can either serve me or you can die. 
and I will let you die. Moses says, no, they must do what the Lord God has told them to do. There is the sense where no compromise. Why? Because of what God says. That's why. And what God says we must do, there can be no compromise. There can be no negotiation. There can be no meeting of us halfway. And I fear too many Christians want to meet the world halfway. Oh, if we could just somehow get together. Ah, oh, if we could just somehow coexist together. The Christian will look different and distinct from the world because the Christian has been redeemed and bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. There is no coming together because the world hates Christ. The world does not want to hear the truth about Christ. The world is an unruly and harsh taskmaster. And so the Lord, or so Pharaoh, says, okay, I'll let you go, but do not go very far. Again, he's not wanting to give up control, is he? He still wants to make a compromise. But Moses is on to his cunning and crafty ways, isn't he? He says, okay, but don't cheat us again. Don't deceive us. That's the idea here. Don't deceive us again. Don't cheat us. I remember what happened before with the frogs. Pharaoh, when you said you would let us go, but you didn't, don't do it again. Pharaoh has a deceptive heart. Pharaoh is a liar. But what would you expect from a son of the father of lies? You would expect deceit and lies. What a distinction. Lord God, Yahweh, always keeps his word. He always keeps his promises. He never cheats. He never deceives. What he says will always happen. He is always dependable. He is faithful. Pharaoh and Satan are liars and deceivers and cheaters. They will not keep their word. They are unfaithful. And they only will seek to destroy. And Pharaoh breaks his word again. Moses goes to the Lord and asks the Lord to let the flies come to an end. And the flies come to an end. And, and look at it. Verse 31. The Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. So just the same extent that it said at the beginning was going to happen, the Lord removed all those flies, and then look what it says. Not one remained. <laughs> you know, we think about it, these plagues are miraculous. But the Lord ending some of these plagues are just as miraculous. 
that he brought them, it happened, that's miraculous, supernatural, but then he ends it, and that is miraculous and supernatural as well. And neither miracle, whether it was the Lord bringing the flies or the Lord taking away the flies, neither of those miracles softened Pharaoh's heart. He was intent on seeing his will be done, and so his heart remained hard. But then we come to number two, and with it, the fifth plague. Number two, when the Lord makes a distinction, he rescues his people through his protection. When the Lord makes a distinction, he rescues his people through his protection. When the Lord makes a distinction, he rescues his people through his protection. Moses again goes to Pharaoh, no specified timing, not in the morning like it said in the last plague, but a warning is given. Same warning, but now we have this addition, the God of the Hebrews. This is a specific God, not a nebulous God. This is a God who has his own people. This is the God of the Hebrews. They are his people. They belong to him. And the same thing is said, let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague. Here it is, the hand of the Lord will fall heavy upon the Egyptians. The hand of the Lord, often associated with judgment. And so here it is, the hand of the Lord is going to fall with more judgment upon the Egyptians again, and it's going to fall, and it's going to fall hard with a very severe, or that word severe could also be heavy, a very heavy plague will be upon them. And yet there will again be a distinction. The Lord makes a distinction between the people of Israel and the Egyptians and between their livestock. All that belongs to the Israelites will not die. All the livestock that belongs to the Israelites will not die, but the Egyptians will not be so fortunate. And look at what it says in verse 5 here of chapter 9. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. Remember back to chapter 8, verse 9, when Moses said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you choose a time that the plague will stop. I'll give you the advantage. I'll give you the upper hand. Pharaoh, you set the time, and it will be so. But now, what does it say? The Lord set a time. He says, I'm going to set a time. I'm in control, and I say tomorrow I'm going to do this thing. He determines when it will happen. And it took place that way. Here is the very first plague that we are confront confronted explicitly with death. The livestock of Egypt died, but not one from the livestock of Israel. And think a moment about the ramifications. Some of this livestock could have been food. And so a food supply was lost. Livestock could have been a way to show that their wealth, but they lost all of that wealth in a day. Livestock could have undergirded their economy. How was the economy supposed to go on now that all of their livestock had died? But the Lord rescued his people 
through his protection. He even protected their livestock. He even watched out for them in this way. They were cared for. The Lord provided for them, sustained them, and cared for them as they depended upon his protection. The Lord shielded their livestock from this plague. What does Pharaoh do? Sends out an investigative team. Did this really happen? His people come back and say, yeah, it really happened. Not one of the Israelites' livestock were dead. And yet what? Pharaoh did not change his heart. His heart was hardened. He did not let the people go. Here again, this word for hardened is heavy. And notice the contrast. The Lord, the hand of the Lord will fall upon you with a very heavy plague. And Pharaoh's heart remained heavy. Even a heavy plague did not remove the heaviness of Pharaoh's heart. But the Lord protected his people. He rescued his people with his protection. He made a distinction. Finally, number three this morning. When the Lord makes a distinction, he renders his enemies powerless. When the Lord makes a distinction, he renders his enemies powerless. When the Lord makes a distinction, he renders his enemies powerless. This last plague in the cycle is just like the third plague of the gnats. No warning, no explicit mention of this plague coming to an end. And here is the action of Moses and Aaron. They're commanded to take handfuls of soot from the kiln. So some people think that this is irony. Soot from the kiln, that same kiln where the Israelites were supposed to make bricks. And so all of the ash that came out of that kiln, now Moses and Aaron are taking that ash into their hands. And they're throwing it up into the air before Pharaoh. Throwing it up in the air is a symbolic symbol that this This plague is coming down from the Lord upon them. And as they throw up this ash, it becomes dust. Fine dust that covers the whole land of Egypt, causing boils to break out on man and beast. So another connection with the third plague. Here is a plague that affects both man and beast. They have these boils, this skin condition upon them. Dust, again, reminding them of their morality, or mortality, I'm sorry, Reminding them of their mortality, rendering them, and reminding them of the impending death that they would have to face. And the distinction in these verses comes with Moses and the magicians. You see that. As Moses and Aaron performed this task, they took the soot from the kiln, verse 10, stood before Pharaoh, and they threw it into the air. And it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. But look at verse 11. And the magicians could not stand before Moses. Moses and Aaron were able to stand before Pharaoh and do this. But the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. The magicians have been unmasked. They've been exposed. That their magic cannot save them. They are unable to save themselves. The magicians have come under this plague and are being judged by this plague. And they cannot stop it. It's on their persons. It's on their bodies. 
So much so that they are in misery and they can't even come before Moses and Aaron. And how we're even reminded in our Bible reading today of Jonas and Jambres, who are thought to be those magicians who could not stand before Moses. Who had tried to deceive, trying to minimize the judgment of God. But they could not, and in fact the judgment of God comes upon them so they, they cannot even stand before Moses. And what a lesson maybe we would learn from them. How everyone needs to accept what these magicians were experiencing, that, that we are unable to save ourselves. These magicians could not save themselves. They could not remove God's judgment that was upon them. We likewise are unable to save ourselves. We can't do it. We are powerless to do so, just as it's been being made explicit here in these verses. These people are powerless to save themselves. There's nothing that they can do to make the boils and the sores go away. They are rendered powerless by the Lord. They could not stand. They were laid low by the dust. But where was Pharaoh's heart in all of this? Well, look at what it says now. Verse 12, chapter 9. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Look at where we've come. As we've worked through this text, today in the, the plague, that first plague that we read about with the swarms of flies, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The next plague, we were told that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And now we're told that it's the Lord who hardened Pharaoh's heart. So which was it? It's all true. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. His heart was hard. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart at the same time. And sometimes that might be hard for us to understand. We wrestle with that. Why why would the Lord harden Pharaoh's heart? Okay, I understand Pharaoh hardening his own heart. But why would the Lord harden Pharaoh's heart? And what comes to our mind? That's not fair. Why would the Lord do that? But doesn't the Lord have the right to do with his own, whatever he wants. If someone were to come into the parking lot this morning and key up my car, I would be upset. Why? It's my car. Would we be upset with the Lord for him to do with his own what he would want? What he would purpose? What he would design? And maybe it gets to the larger question, do we view ourselves that way? Lord, if you have made me, if I am yours and you own me, then you have the right. And doesn't it highlight the fact that the Lord is in complete control? He is in control of everything. He is even in control of Pharaoh's heart. He is completely in control. And so 
rather than me try to stand up here and try to relieve the tension, maybe it's good that there is tension there because maybe it draws us to the fact that we need to realize that the Lord is in complete control and he has the right to do with his whatever he wants to do. He is sovereign. What a lesson that not only is the Lord teaching Pharaoh about his own sovereignty, but the Lord is teaching us about his sovereignty, isn't he? God knows what he is doing, and he does it perfectly. Everything. As the Lord works in our own hearts, in our own lives, do we recognize his sovereign hand? Some things that have happened to us we can't explain. We don't know why. We might even not know for what purpose. But is it ever enough to say, if God is in complete control, underline that word, if God is in complete control, then he knows what he's doing. And he's doing it for a reason and for a purpose and for his own glory. And so we're good. Here again, our cycle points out, points us towards final judgment. When God's judgment falls, it comes with a distinction. And so let's turn for a moment to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 16, just to end. Revelation 16, chapter, uh, chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of what? Of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people. Which people? The people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Do you see the parallels? What was it that happened in this plague that we've just read about in Exodus? Sores boils upon people's body now here again with this first bowl that's poured out this first bowl of God's wrath that's poured out what happens sores on people's bodies but which people everybody without distinction no it's poured out upon those who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image there is the distinction There are those who bear the mark of the beast and worship the beast, and there are those who do not bear the mark of the beast and who do not worship its image. Turn with me for a moment back to Revelation 13.
Revelation 13, verse 16. Also it causes both great and small, both, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for the number of a man, and his number is 666. I wonder if we were to do a poll, how many people would know about the mark of the beast? Who would say, yeah, I've heard about that, I know about that, I know that people are going to have this mark, and it, it can terrify some people. And how there have been many frivolous speculations, UPC symbols, implanted microchip, what might be the mark of the beast? There will be the mark of the beast. Those who will show their allegiance to the beast. But let's keep reading for a moment. In chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. How many know about that mark? We hear so often about the mark of the beast, but who knows, ah, here are people, they have a mark on their foreheads, and what's on their foreheads? Ah, it's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father's name that's written on their foreheads. There is a distinction. For all who are believers in Christ, you bear that distinction. You bear the name of Christ and the name of the Father upon yourself. You don't need to worry about the mark of the beast. Worship God. Worship Him. You will not get the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is for those who do not worship God, who refuse to worship God, who reject God and everything that He is. You are part of the redeemed on the earth who now bear the name of Christ and the name of the Father. Are you ever worried if you have that name written on your forehead? While we are distracted by other things, frivolous things, we should be saying, my allegiance is to Christ. I am distinct because of Him. I am different in this world. I worship Him. I don't worship the things of this world. I live for Him. I don't live for the things of this world. My desire is for Him. I do not follow after the desires of this world. We need to be sure about this distinction now because there will be a distinction later that's coming. And listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 27. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left, and then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed. By my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The Lord makes a distinction. So we need to be those who are living this distinct life now. Different. Holy lives. You shall therefore be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Not trying to blend in with the world. Not trying to be communion Christians. But declaring our allegiance for Christ. And if you say, I want to declare my allegiance for Christ, but you not, have not yet declared your allegiance for Christ, today is the day you can go to him, call out in faith to him. You can turn from your sin and repentance and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want, I want your name on my forehead. I want to follow you with all that I am. And then you will know what it says here at the end of what I just read. It's the righteous, those who follow Christ, who will have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. And I pray that we would be a people who are distinct, who are different, who are set apart. And that distinction would be seen in who we worship, how we live our lives. I pray that we would be those who are the redeemed, bought with the precious blood of Christ, and that there is no denying that we are yours. And I ask that you would help us to be people who do not compromise with this world, but that we would be people who are faithful and who are testifying to Christ. Lord, it's not easy. Oftentimes in our own natures, we want to blend in. We don't want to stick out. We don't want to say anything. We don't want anyone to know. But Father, people must know that we're different. Because people must know about Christ. And so I pray that our testimony would go forth from our lives and from our words that people would know that people would hear the truth and that Lord in your your sovereign way and according to your sovereign will that some would be saved rescued from an eternity that is apart from you and in eternal destruction. Father, may your word have its perfect way in us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.